0: that I'm aware of are the picnic which will be Saturday April 16th 11:30 till 4 p.m. Now we do have a we do have a backup date if it rains because Sunday I said there was a 60% chance of rain for that Saturday with the 50% on Friday, 40% Thursday. You know, if it rains Thursday and Friday, that just makes it miserable for Saturday because it'll be too muddy. But then yesterday they, they lowered it to like 20% for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And then today it was back up. So it's still 10 days out, so anything can happen. But we did um, adopt a backup date the next Saturday. So if that Saturday gets rained out, then we will... Uh, go for the next Saturday. And then the other announcement is that uh, Doug Carn and Jeff Phipps are going to be going down to Natal, Brazil again uh, next week. You remember they went down in October, and they're going to be partnering with two local pastors in Brazil uh, on April. They'll be there from April 8th to the 18th, and they're going to be teaching on Galatians. So uh, one note is that we help finance uh, their trips down to natal and there still remains a financial need to support that effort so if anyone is motivated to do so you can uh, make a donation to west Houston bible church and indicate uh, with the um, contribution that that's for the brazil mission so that should take care of that how shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study, it's our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer before we begin our study of God's word. Scripture teaches that we either walk by the Spirit or we walk according to the flesh. It's one or the other. It's not a little bit of both and some of the other. And so whenever we sin, we are shifting gears to walk according to the sin nature, the default position. And then to recover, we confess sin. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful we can come together this evening to be refreshed by your word, to be encouraged and strengthened as we study the truth of your word, that as our Lord said, we are sanctified by the truth. That is the means you have uh, decreed for our spiritual growth, our spiritual edification, as we walk by the Spirit. It is through your Spirit and your word that we are matured. Father, we pray that as we study tonight that our thinking would be transformed by your word and that we can renew our minds that we can think your thoughts after you that we can learn to think biblically think doctrinally think according to divine truth and not according to a human viewpoint systems of thought and we pray that we would be willing to take the challenge to do so in christ's name amen okay we're in first samuel chapter 13 1 Samuel chapter 13, and as we wrapped up in chapter 12, the last two or three lessons, what we were focusing on was Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness to the covenant, Israel's rebelliousness. And now as we shift gears to chapter 13, we're going to see Saul's rebelliousness and several things that we're going to learn. This is an interesting set of chapters. The next three chapters uh, work together as we see King Saul just completely deteriorate spiritually, and God takes the kingdom from him. And we sort of see this in stages. Stage one occurs in chapter 13. Stage two occurs in chapter 15. And in both situations, it is the same basic problem, and that is that Saul is rebellious toward God, and that is just the default position of the sin nature. But I'm always reminded as we look at the Old Testament that we one thing we have learned in our study in Romans is in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that the key to the spiritual growth in Romans 6, 3 through 6, that the key is to understand that we have been crucified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is a reference to the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and that's what happens at the instant that we're saved. And as a result of that, Paul says that we are dead to sin. That doesn't mean that we um, don't still sin. and doesn't mean we can't st- sin in competition with the greatest of unbelievers. But it does mean that we no longer are under the tyranny of the sin nature where that's the only option. We have true liberty, and we have true freedom of choice to not sin, to walk with the Lord. And that's Paul's challenge in Romans chapter 6. And as we've studied that, I pointed out that, that this really affirms the principles of dispensationalism, that the church is distinct not only in terms of its destiny but, also, in terms of the spiritual life that we have been given, because we have a unique spiritual life, unlike any believer in all of history, in the Old Testament, we can be critical of Samson, we can be critical of Eli, we can be critical of Saul, we can be critical of a lot of believers that seem to have failed, uh, but they still were under the tyranny of the sin nature. They didn't have the benefit of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So I think that when people look at Saul, they often think, oh, look at his life. He's got a lot of failure. He must not have been a believer. And I pointed out reasons that I believe that he is a believer, but he's just a rebellious, disobedient, uh, carnal believer who is living in rebellion against God. He's never really demonstrated a whole lot of spiritual spiritual interest. Now, in a chapter we haven't come to yet on Sunday morning, one I'm looking forward to, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks, is the uh, confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees that comes up in chapter 23. And there, Jesus makes one of those statements that shows that he didn't read uh, Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. And I was always amazed how many people thought that pastors ought to read that book. And I said, no, you read the Bible. And what happens in the Bible is you realize that, that, that the, the people who are standing for truth don't always do what will win friends and influence people. And... Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. We'll see this when we get there. Jesus had a tendency to, when he was talking to the Pharisees to say, th- say things like, have you not read? And he's saying that to a group of people who have memorized the entire Old Testament. So he was constantly sort of tweaking their, their nose, slapping them in the face with, with what the Scripture says. But in this verse, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Always helps your position to call people a hypocrite to their faith. And he's doing it in love because he's the impeccable Lord Jesus Christ, so he can't, can't do that not in love. So we have to understand that that's all a part of love. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you are also out, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is not a pleasant picture of the Pharisees, but it's so often true of a lot of Christians, and it's true, uh, especially of a lot of politicians, and we may or may not be sure of their eternal destiny, but they have a tendency to have this external pretense of religion and and Saul was no exception to this and as Jesus confronted the pharisees here he he makes them realize that they've got a counterfeit good a counterfeit righteousness that their righteousness was superficial and external it wasn't internal they were not walking according to the standards of the torah which not only addressed external obedience, but also addressed uh, the matters of the heart. They were to love the Lord their God, according to Deuteronomy and Exodus, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's an internal reality. That's not just an external observance. So they had uh, succumbed to a system that focused on just a simple outward uh, focus and outward appearance of righteousness, they were moral by all accounts many of us would be more attracted to the pharisees we certainly wouldn't be attracted to the sadducées they were the liberals of the day although we don't know a lot about them because they didn't write anything and the only people who wrote anything about them were their enemies the pharisees so if 500 years from now the uh, only people that <coughs> that were that <coughs> the only writings that were left to talk about evangelicals were the writings of our enemies, what would people think about us? So we really don't know a lot about the Sadducees. We know a few things about them, but the Pharisees uh did tried to do everything right. They said the right words, they went to a temple every day, they uh prayed uh many times a day, they were uh outwardly righteous. But the problem was internal. They were controlled by their sin nature. And that's what Jesus meant by the fact that they were full of dead men's boat. Whether or not they were personally justified isn't the issue. The fact is they're living like a spiritually dead person. You know, Jesus is talking to a whole group of Pharisees, and we know that at least two Pharisees, Joseph and Nicodemus, were born again. So he's making a generalized statement when he does that. And even believers can live at times where they appear to be even worse than unbelievers because they are in rebellion. In fact, I think that when believers go into full-scale rebellion like the prodigal son, they end up a whole lot worse than those who are just trying to live uh, a, a Christian life and are walking by the Lord but stumble along the way. So they had a problem with this mental attitude. They had slipped into the trap of externalism. And they were going through all the right motions externally, but internally they are walking as if they're spiritually dead, and in many cases they probably were. And this is the problem with Saul. And woe unto us if we fall into this trap of spiritual self-deception and just externalism. And sadly, I think a lot of Christians are that way. They think they just go through the motions. They go to church on Sunday, they go maybe every now and then in the middle of the week. They have a Bible at home. Uh, every now and then they open it. They open it. They're, they're going to uh, find God's will. They open it, close their eyes, point their finger at a verse, read it, go and do likewise. Well, we got to find another one. So uh, they don't do very well. So, so we have to avoid that trap. But that's the problem with Saul is he doesn't have a <clears throat> devotion to obedience to the Torah. Now, we see his decline and f- failure in these coming chapters. And we start off in 1 Samuel 13, 1 with one of those difficult verses, and it's difficult because we really don't know what it says in the original. We only know what it uh it seems to say, because there are some words that were left out. And I've put this verse in three translations up here on the screen for you to show you how different translators have sought to solve the problem. I have italicize, and it's probably that way in your Bibles, uh, if you, if you, um, some Bibles, my new King, King James doesn't italicize any, some put a bracket in there like the um, NET Bible does at the bottom, but we, it literally reads in the text that we have, Saul reigned blank year, there is one translation where the translators were gutsy enough to just put a question mark there. That's hard to sell Bibles when you put question marks in place of words in the Bible. They don't. A lot of people don't think you really believe in the Bible. Um, Saul reigned question mark year, and when he had reigned question mark years over Israel. Now, if you compare that to the NASB, we read Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now they get the forty. I don't know where they get the two, unless they're adding 40, they They're taking the two that that it seems to be um, uh, pre- present, and uh, uh, seems like Saul has been reigning two years, and they're going to add forty to it. First Samuel thirteen one reads: Saul was x years old, and they supply thirty. When he began to reign, and he ruled over Israel for forty years. Now one, there are two ways that we get forty years there. One way that we get forty years there is from Acts thirteen twenty one, where Paul, uh, Paul specifically says Saul reigned for t- for forty years. I think that's pretty good. That's a New American Standard inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's he's going to be accurate. And then you compare it with Second Samuel two ten, which talks about the age of Ishbosheth. You all know about Ishbosheth, don't you? That's one of those familiar Bible names. Maybe you'll name a dog or a cat that, but you're not going to find too many people naming their babies Ishbosheth. But Ishbosheth is 40 years old when Saul dies. And Ishbosheth has not been mentioned up to this point as one of Saul's sons. The other three sons are mentioned by this point. Ishbosheth is not. So it is assumed that Ishbosheth was born close to the time that Saul began to reign. And so he's the baby, and if he dies, um, uh, <clears throat> or if he reigns for, or if he he's forty years old, then um, then that would when he begins to reign, then th- that's after Saul died. Then that would mean that he was solid reigned forty years, so that would confirm that uh, that forty year period. So we're it's a little difficult here because. Uh, chronologically, we would really like to have, be able to nail down how old Saul was and how old, how long he reigned. And the best we can come up with is, is how, um, how long he reigned. And so that becomes a bit of an issue in chronology. If you were here at the Chafer Conference on the last night when, uh, Steve Austin was talking about, uh, various issues related to the signs of the cross, he pointed out a couple of things that w- one book I had seen, but I hadn't picked it up. I've got a stack of books on biblical chronology, and everybody tends to disagree with each other. And sometimes it's, it's like undoing a knot of yarn when you're dealing with biblical chronology. And we've got a couple of issues coming up. One is chronology in Samuel, and the other is chronology of the last week of Jesus' life preceding the cross. That's, that's a tough one. But there's a book called From Abraham, uh, or, yeah, it's from, from Abraham to Paul, I believe is the name of it. I just, that he recommended that night, and I just picked it up. And the author of that book, whose name escapes me right now, along with another, um, another man who is a mathematician and chronologist, that's his Field. He's not a biblicist. He's just working calendars. Have really done a lot of work, and both of them have have published a lot of articles in the Evangelical Theological Society Journal over the last twenty years, dealing with some really tough chronological issues, and they've come to some really good and interesting conclusions, and they've changed my views on a couple of little things, not not major things. They take the scripture literally, and they take the numbers literally, which is important. And so they're they're conservative, but they're pointing out some things that I think have been very, uh, very, very helpful. But they uh, he points out in this book that that this absence of numbers in in 1 Samuel 13:1 is really a problem uh, in terms of putting together a tight chronology of this period. We can generally get most of the dates, but one of the things that we don't we can't really tell is when this battle. That has two stages that we're going to study, the Battle of Micmash in chapter 13 and chapter 14. We see Jonathan, but we can't really pinpoint how old Jonathan is. He seems to be uh, a mature uh, warrior. Anywhere, he could be anywhere from 25 to 40 years of age. And that's real, I've always thought that's interesting because David is probably born or is only about nine or ten years old. He's anywhere from one to ten at this particular time. And when you think about how close Jonathan and David were, usually you see all these children's Bible stories and animated stories, and they've got Jonathan and David at roughly the same age. But there there may be as much as 15 or 16 years' uh, age difference between David and Jonathan. If Jonathan is a little more mature and is... Uh, perhaps, uh, 35, uh, 35, 38 years of age at the time of this battle, and this is long before David, uh, meets Goliath, then there could be as long, much as a 20 year gap, uh, in their ages. And that's interesting because Jonathan's the crown prince, and he recognizes David is the one who's anointed to replace Saul and Jonathan gives his loyalty to a man who's anywhere from 10 to 20 years his junior. That's somebody who has integrity and character because he's looking at somebody who's just you know wet behind-the-ears pup, and he recognizes that's the one that God has chosen for him. So uh, we'll get into some of those issues as we get a little further further along. But now what we see is that uh, as this... Begins. Saul and Israel are facing their generational enemy of the Pharisees. I mean, of the of the Philistines. The Philistines have been a problem going back into the period of the Judges. They they really became a problem under uh, at the time of uh, of Samson. But even earlier, they were a problem when we have that one verse where Shamgar uh kills a number of uh Philistines back in the second chapter or third chapter of judges rather and so the Philistines have been a problem but now they have uh really taken a strong position and they have Israel under their their heel again they were defeated at the battle uh battle of Aphek by by um, by Samuel and now um, they, they've come back, and they've come back strong. Now, the Philistines were a part of a Greek migration. We'll look at this map here. We see Philistia down here along the coast. This is where they they settled you have uh, some philistines came early sort of they there there were waves of these uh, greek sea peoples that they're uh, that they're called uh, the earliest ones came a little bit before abraham and they established some of these cities along the coast you have gaza ashdod gath ekron and these are the primarily where they were located along the uh, along the coast And then as we get into this period, they have begun to uh, push north and east, and they're coming now into the central highlands here in Israel. If you haven't been to Israel, this is pretty rugged terrain all through here, and it is, if you go out towards uh, Fredericksburg, north of Fredericksburg, towards Llano, around that area in the hill country. This is a lot more rugged than that. This is extremely rugged terrain. So um, we'll see a little bit. I've got some pictures to show you in just a little bit. But they are, they've are they become quite a force. They were originally a mix of Greeks, and in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, it identifies them as from the Isle of – they were from Caftor, which is Crete, and they were um, the Philistines were the the Kaftar, or the captorim rather were descendants of Ham and the Greeks were descendants of Japheth, so they're kind of a blend of people, and they they established themselves as sailors, and they pretty much controlled all of the uh, maritime trade on the Mediterranean. They established these cities along the coast in Philistia, but they went north, and the cities of Tyre and Sidon, Phoenicia were all the same people. Uh, later, they will... Uh, when you have the the conquest of the of the Greeks under Alexander, they're going to be forced to leave, and they go west and they establish a colony at Carthage, and that, they become the enemies of the Romans for for quite a while until the Romans finally subdue them. So that gives you a little history and a little background on the uh, on the on the Philistines. Now. <clears throat> At this point, this is uh, probably some years after Saul was anointed at at Gilgal. We don't know how long because we've lost the numbers in thirteen one, but he was anointed at Gilgal. And this is down along the, uh, uh, in the uh, uh, area where you cross the Jordan River, and this was when the in, when the Israelites first crossed into the land. This is where they uh, set up a, a cairn, rock cairns, to memorialize coming across the. The uh, Jordan and where they renewed their commitment uh, to God, and it was where the all of the men who had been born in the Exodus, I mean in the conquest, excuse me, in the wilderness period. This is where they were all circumcised as they were now entering into the land as a sign that they were under the covenant with God. So Gilgal is a Significant place for the nation to come together for purposes of their devotion to God as well as purposes related to the defense of the nation this happens um, This happens several times now Saul is going to face a second test of his leadership. He had to handle a problem with the Ammonites, which we saw in in Chapter eleven as he saved the uh, inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. And he is going to face a second major test. And remember, the primary role of the Messiah King is to protect the people from their enemies and to provide for the liberty and the freedom of the people. And that's a great principle because that's true for any head of state, for any government. That is the primary uh, mission for government, according to scripture, under divine institution uh, number five, which has to do with the nations. That is the job of the government, government to protect the nation, to secure the borders, to provide the defense for the citizens for external enemies as well as uh, internal enemies, in other words, crime. And so this is the role that Saul has, and this is a picture, of course, of the ultimate role of God's Messiah King who is going to provide uh, eternal salvation for his people, and he is going to protect them as such from the ravages of sin and provide redemption for them, and he is also going to provide genuine liberty uh, for, for believers. In G- Galatians 5.1 we read, Paul saying stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage now the yoke of bondage is legalism and see legalism is what the pharisees succumb to this idea of just going through this the the external acts of obedience is what led to a, a, just an external religious form and it, there was no internal relationship with God. There was no real love for the Lord. And we have to note that in scripture, freedom is not independence from God's authority. See, the way a lot of people think of freedom, and by the way, freedom and liberty are mutually exclusive. Freedom and liberty are mutually exclusive because freedom means you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. But liberty brings in the concept of personal responsibility. And and to the degree that people are free, they others lose liberty. To the degree that people have liberty, we limit our freedom. We are not free to do whatever we want. True freedom leads to anarchy. We believe in liberty. This is, was understood by the founding fathers of this nation that we were we were fighting for liberty, not for autonomy, not for pure uh, anarchic type of uh, type of freedom. Liberty is the freedom spiritually from the sin nature, but it's not freedom to do whatever we want to do. It is the freedom to choose to obey God. This is what we find in passages like Romans 6.16, where Paul says, "...do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered." See, obedience to the Lord out of love is the opposite of legalism. And legalism is just that superficial externalism that Saul had fallen into and that the Pharisees fall into and that so many Christians fall into. It's just this trap that if I sort of go through the checklist, then I'm okay with God. And our relationship with God is a matter of the heart. This is why God says, many times to the Jews that he desired obedience rather than sacrifice. Sacrifice was following the standards of the law, but there wasn't necessarily any obedience that went along with it. And a problem that we have with with uh, uh, a lot of Christians today is they think that obedience is somehow legalistic. I don't know if you've heard it, but I've heard Christians say that, um, well, all this talk about obedience. There are things I need to do. I need to be obedient in the Christian life. This is just just legalism. I'm free. Grace has freed me from from legalism, so I don't have to do, do that. No, you don't have to do that for your salvation, but you do have to be obedient in order to grow spiritually and to avoid the consequences of sin. We may be forgiven eternally from the consequences of our sin. We may be forgiven whenever we confess our sins, but that does not mean that the consequences are not ours. And the the issue of obeying God and it being linked to love for God is found throughout the Scriptures. For example, in Deuteronomy 5.10, we read by showing mercy, god is speaking and he says by showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments notice the connection there loving god means you keep his commandments and so often today we have people who sing wonderful little choruses that make them feel all warm and fuzzy oh how i love jesus and yet there's no obedience in their life at all. Scripture says the barometer to determine whether you love Jesus is whether you're obedient to Jesus. And the barometer for for disobedience, I mean for, for a lack of love, is disobedience, a failure. Uh, to walk with the Lord and to obey Him. Deuteronomy six seventeen says, "You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you." No, no, see, but this isn't to become saved. This is how the saved people of Israel are to, are the people of God are to live as people of God. This is about their spiritual life, their sanctification, not about their ultimate justification. Deuteronomy seven nine says, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who uh with those who love him and keep his commandments. That dropped off the bottom of the screen there. Love him and keep his commandments. Notice a connection again between loving him and keeping keeping his commandments. Then in Deuteronomy eleven twenty two for if you carefully keep all these commandments, God says, which I commanded you to do, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways. That's another way of talking about obedience, and to hold fast to him. See the connection between keeping his commandments and loving the Lord. The two go together. Then we have John I mean Deuteronomy thirteen fourteen thirteen four. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. And keep his commandments and obey his voice; you shall serve him and hold fast to him. A lot of the same terms we saw as we were going through the covenant language that was in uh, chapter twelve last week. We are to walking after the Lord means to keep his commandments and serving him. Now, the reason I did this—that's all from Deuteronomy—and somebody's going to say, "Well, see, that's just legalism. That's from the law that we have to obey him." Well, wait a minute. Let's see what Jesus says to the disciples on in the what's called the upper room discourse the night before he goes to the cross. There he is clearly from John thirteen on giving his disciples instructions for what the code of conduct would be in the church age. In John fourteen fifteen he sounds so deuteronomic. If you love me, keep my commandments John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If we want to have a closer relationship to the Lord, we walk in obedience, and that demonstrates our love for him. In John 15.10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's fellowship. That's not talking about salvation or the loss of salvation. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father 's commandments and abide in his love first john two three uh, John I believe that john john 's first epistle is his deep reflection upon what Jesus said in the upper room discourse. He uses the same language all the way through it it 's just remarkable. He says in First John two three. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. There's that barometer. Now some people think that knowing Jesus is what happens when you trust in Him, and we often hear that in in our evangelical uh, slang. We say, "Do you know Jesus?" But when Peter was talking to Philip in John fourteen three through five. Philip said, well, we've seen you show us the Father, and and Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How long have I been with you, Philip? Do you not know me? Now, he's talking to a disciple who's a believer, and he says, don't you know me? See, knowing Jesus is something that happens after we're saved, as we come to know who he is, and we demonstrate our love for him as we walk in obedience, that relationship gets closer and closer. So knowing Jesus isn't justification, knowing Jesus is what develops in our spiritual growth and spiritual life. And that's how we know that we are growing spiritually, that we've come to know him, is that we keep his commandments. That's the barometer. First John 2, 4, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so we see that this problem that is a perennial problem for believers throughout the ages is walking in obedience to the Lord. And not succumbing to legalism on the one hand, which just imposes a superficial external standard that if we can check off our terrible two things we never do or our fearsome five or nasty nine or whatever the list is, that's just externalism. And the other extreme is licentiousness, where we just think, well, I'm free in Christ, so I can do whatever I want to do. Neither of those are biblical. Those are the poles of our sin nature. We either swing towards legalism and asceticism, or we swing in the opposite direction towards licentiousness and antinomianism. But walking with the Lord means that we're going to demonstrate our love for him by learning the word and growing and maturing. Saul's faced with the problem because he doesn't know the Lord. What's interesting in this chapter is we don't see him responding to the threat by looking for Samuel. We don't see him responding to the threat by uh, seeking Samuel's wisdom, calling upon the name of the Lord. He doesn't have any of that language here. He is handling the situation and circumstances all on his own. Now, for application, as we look at any of these battle situations in the Old Testament, I want you to think of this in terms of the spiritual battle that we're in in our life. That's where we see a transfer for application. Now, the interpretation that we see uh, in this chapter is it's the, the writer of Samuel is showing us the need for David, the need for another kind of king. That's what, what we'll get to before the chapter ends, that Saul is a king like all the people wanted, like all the nations, but he's not the kind of king that should rule God's people. He's not a king like David. What's going to distinguish them, as we'll see in this chapter, is David is going to be identified by God as a man after his own heart. That means a man who desires above all things to do God's will. Did he fail? Sure he did, miserably. But throughout it all, he still was a man who wanted to do God's will in his life, and that should hopefully characterize most of us. We fail miserably at times. If you're a human being and you have a sin nature, you're going to fail miserably at times. But God's grace provides the solution always. And Christ died on the cross for every sin, no matter what it is. And all sin is paid for at the cross, and there's always recovery. But God wants a man and a woman who desires to know him above everything else and to do his will. You'll have ups and downs. You'll have times of failure, maybe gross failure. But just as David did, he had gross failure. But God's conclusion throughout his life was that no matter how bad David was, David still wanted to please God, even when he was in full-scale rebellion. And that's true too often for too many of us. So what we see here is that that <clears throat> Saul is not seeking a solution on his, uh, from Samuel, but on his own. In verse 2 we read, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and a 1,000 were Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Now, where did he get the idea to do that? Does this remind you of anybody? It's sort of reminiscent of, of Gideon, isn't it? Gideon was up against, though, a much larger force. He was up against 135,000 um, 135, uh, Midianites, and he started off with about 32,000. God got rid of twelve thousand; he was down to ten. Then he got rid of nine thousand seven hundred; he was down to three hundred. Three hundred against one hundred thirty-five thousand; those were the odds that that uh, he was facing. And I don't know that this was part of uh, of Saul's thinking or not. But Saul has just in the previous uh, chapter had a huge number of uh, of Israelites with him. He had three hundred and thirty thousand, according to. First uh, Samuel chapter eleven, verse eight, three hundred and thirty thousand. And he sends them all home, except for three thousand. So he cuts his force down by ninety percent, and he's got three thousand left with him, and he takes two thousand and goes to Mikmash. And then he's going to take, uh, leave a thousand under Jonathan and sends Jonathan to Gibeah of Benjamin. Now, if we're going to understand this, we have to look at a map. I love maps. And this is a good, interesting map because this is a topographical map and you can see, uh, the ridge lines here. And what I want you to notice here, we'll see it more in some pictures. There's, see, you can see this dark line that runs just above Tel Miriam. It runs east-west. Uh, through Tel Miriam and just south of this red star, which is Michmash. And then it runs down here through this Wadi. And this is the path of Michmash. That's where the battle in the next chapter is going to take place. And so it's, it's rugged, horribly rugged terrain. Uh, down here we have Geba that's mentioned. And then if we keep on this, notice we have almost a straight line here. Here is Gibeah of Saul. Here's Geba. Now, some commentators think they're the same place, but they're not. Those of you who were with me on the last trip to Israel, and when Joel drove us through this area, and Joel Kramer is an archaeologist over there who went with us, he had a throwaway line nobody caught. I caught it. He said, Geba is not Gibeah. They're two different places. So this is, and I filed that away because I said, I'm doing Samuel. I'm going to get there. Um, Down here is Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, here's our scale right over here. So this is six miles. And so from Jerusalem to Gibeah of Saul is about four and a half miles. It's not very far. Just on the outskirts of modern Jerusalem now. And you, and you drive right up a highway along here. Here's Ramah, which is Samuel's hometown. Now if you look at this, you're looking at a direct line. If you're standing here to the southwest of Gibeah and you're looking to the northeast, you're going to see this Town in the foreground, and then you'll see Geba, and then you'll see Micmash okay? Now you see it. How about that? I don't know how people taught this without pictures and maps and everything. This is uh, Gibeah of Saul in the foreground, that where the ancient site was, and then across here you see uh, Geba, and then... On the far horizon, you see micmash See how they're aligned? It doesn't that look like really a, attractive? Ter- you want to buy some land there? Of course, that's in the that's in the West Bank. It's pretty dry and arid, um, but this gives you an idea of the proximity of these these places, these villages, uh, in the ancient world. So, Jonathan. Uh, what, what the description here is Saul pulls out, goes to the northeast, and takes up a defensive position on this ridge up by Michmash. And what you don't see here is there's a tremendous uh, chasm that runs through here. So he's got a defensive position over here because he can use the terrain to keep the Philistines from attacking him. Now, the Philistines have, a, have their outpost here at Geba, so he's taken up a position on the far side, and then Jonathan has a thousand here in Gibeah of Saul, Saul's hometown, uh in, in the forefront. Now what we see here is a classic situation where Saul sets up a defensive position and you can't ever win a war in on the defense. You can't win a football game if all you have is defense. You can't win anything if all you have is defense. You have to have offense. And in the spiritual life, we have to understand where we're on the offense and where we're on the defense. By application, there's three enemies in the spiritual life. The first enemy is our own worst enemy. That's our sin nature. The second enemy is the world system. And the third enemy is the devil. Now, Satan is the real inspiration of the world system. The world system is all the thoughts and values and ideas and religions and philosophies that make up cultures, and they influence us from the time we are babies. We're influenced by a lot of cultural ideas and human viewpoint thinking from our parents, our peers, our professors, all the way through school, and that makes up the world that influences us. And Romans 12, 2, of course, says we're not to be conformed to the world, but we have our minds conformed all those years before we're even saved. But we have to do something about that. And then we have the problem of the sin nature. Now, the world and the sin nature are enemies that we are to aggressively attack. We are to be on the offense against the sin nature and against the world. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says, um, 8.13, excuse me. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, a couple of things you need to note there. First, we either live according to the flesh or we live according to the Spirit. This is the same thing Paul says over in Galatians 5:16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. We either walk according to the flesh or the sin nature, or we're walking according to the Spirit. Now, what we're to do is to walk according to the Spirit, and by the Spirit, who works with the Word of God, we put to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of the sin nature. We're to be aggressive at putting to death the deeds of the sin nature. We are to be on a search-and-destroy mission for our whole life, and we're not real good at it. Fortunately, God forgives us and meets us with grace. But it's an offensive action. In Romans 12:2, we take the offense against the world. We are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then James 4, 4 says, adulterers and adulteresses. See, he learned from his half-brother Jesus to, to how to win friends and influence people. So he's writing to the recipients of this epistle, and he calls them adulterers and adulteresses because they, like all of us, are unfaithful to God, sometimes not so much, sometimes a lot. And he says that their problem is they're worldly. They're thinking like the world. And he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You, you can't have it both ways. I have a lot of Christians who try to be friends with the world and think like the world, so there's not a lot of uh, antagonism between them and their co-workers or their children or their family members. They just want to get along to get along, go along to get along. And so um, James says you can't do that. Friendship with the world its hostility towards God, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can be a Christian and an enemy of God because you're failing to put to to, to uh, deal with the worldly thinking in your own soul second corinthians ten three and four talks about this same battle, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. See, that's an aggressive action. That is using military imagery to talk about attacking a fortress and dismantling it and taking it down. This is further developed in verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. The way you think about... Engineering. The way you think about mathematics. You never thought about that, did you? If God created everything, then God, in God's own mind, He's thinking about the creation of the whole world according to mathematical paradigms and equations. He created arithmetic and math and geometry and trigonometry and calculus and much, much more. All is within His, within His mind. So you can think about these things in a biblical way or in a non-biblical way. We have to bring every thought into captivity. That's math, that's philosophy, that's literature, that's politics, that's law, that's every single area of intellectual activity in in human existence has to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So we are to take aggressive action, but there's one area where we don't take aggressive action. We don't take aggressive action against the devil and the demons. First of all, we don't because the Scripture says we don't. Second, the reason it says we don't is they're invisible. It's hard to attack an enemy you can't see. So what the Scripture says in Ephesians 6:10 and following is three times, we're to stand fast, we're to withstand, and we're to stand fast, all based on the same word in the Greek, which means to hold a defensive position. It doesn't mean to go out. Who's on the offensive? Jesus is. He can handle the enemy that we can't. We can't see it, so we're just take the defensive position, and he comes around and operates on the offensive. That may be what Saul's got going on here, because he's taken up a defensive position, but the but the one who's got the maneuverability is Jonathan, and Jonathan attacks the garrison of the Philistines in Geba, and this and he defeats it, and this really shakes up the Philistines, and they react with great anger and hostility, and as soon as Saul hears about it, he blows the trumpet and, and sends out messengers throughout all the land that for the Jews, the Hebrews, to know that, that they have defeated the Philistines. Now, there's only one thing the Philistines can do, and that is that they have to react Now see, Jonathan has done the right thing the right way. He's trusted in the Lord. We know from all the passages that, and what's coming up in chapter 13, that he feared the Lord. And so he is, he is trusting in the Lord in the midst of battle. But a lot of times when we trust the Lord and we do the right thing, it doesn't make things better. It makes things worse. And we go from the uh, frying pan into the fire, as it were, and things get a lot tougher. Because we're living in the devil's world, and the devil is going to react when any believer starts walking with the Lord. Now, I've, I've kind of highlighted a couple of words here, because in, in the Hebrew text they stand out, and that's the word here. The Philistines heard about it. Saul sends out an announcement, let the Hebrews hear. And then when all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, then they realize that israel had become an abomination to the philistines now the philistines are really angry and it's it's just going to get even even worse and that's a note of encouragement for believers because sometimes believers we we live through situations in our life where we say lord i'm trusting you i'm obeying you but it just keeps getting worse but god is still in control and God's strength is still available to us. And things are going to get worse in this situation uh, as as uh, Israel faces the Philistines. So we go back to our map here. Here's Gilgal. All of this is taking place over here uh, between Gibeah and uh, Geba, right in this area. And Saul is on the north side of that uh, east-west Michmash Pass. He's going to head to Gilgal. And to rally the troops, the Philistines are going to go back and they're going to gather their troops and they're going to come into the hill country uh, with their troops to put down this insurrection by the Israelites. Now we'll look at the next few verses. This is kind of interesting to, to pay attention to what's going on here. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. That is a lot of chariots. And in that rugged terrain, that's not chariot terrain. That is not tank terrain. You, you have to, if you think in terms of the military, you have to have wide open planes to have tank warfare. Chariots were the same kind of thing. And, uh, in fact, there's a problem with this number, and the Septuagint and some other uh, ancient manuscripts have 3,000 chariots, which makes sense because the 6,000 horsemen aren't cavalry, they are the charioteers. So if you have 6,000 charioteers and 3,000 chariots, it makes a lot more sense because then you would have two charioteers, one driver and one who's the archer, and that would make sense. So they're not coming in with with 30,000 chariots. They're coming in with 3,000, and uh, but they're vastly outnumbered. Uh, they're still outnumbering the, the Israelites uh, because they ha- would have had others as well. They come with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand, which is on the seashore. That's the supporting infantry troops. So they're coming in to totally uh, knock down the Israelites. And they set up an, an, an encamped between Michmash to the east of beth We'll figure that out on the map later. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that, look at their response. Are they saying the battle is the Lord's? No, because Saul has completely failed as a leader. Saul can neither identify the problem nor identify the solution. If you can't identify the problem, you'll never identify the solution. And he's a lot like the politicians we have today. They can't identify the problem, and they can't identify the solution, and so they're just worthless. And what happens is the people they're supposed to lead are scared to death. They look out there on the horizon, and they see all kinds of problems. We see the rise of ISIS. We see the increasing debt. We see uh, problems going on with, with refugees that are just flooding the country that can change everything. We see all these problems, but we have leaders who, because of their worldview and their disobedience toward God and rebellion against biblical truth... Cannot properly identify the problem and can't even come close to a solution, and so all they're doing is making matters worse. And that's basically what was going on with Saul. The picture we see here is Israelite. The Israelites are scared to death. They're, uh, the New King James translates it dis- distressed, but they are oppressed or under pressure, just like you and I come under pressure with various things in life, and we make bad decisions. That's what's happening here. They're under bad decisions, and what do they do? They hide. It'd be, you'd think it'd be enough to just say they hid in caves, or they hid out from the enemy. But the writer it goes really drills it, and he says they hid in caves, thickets, rocks, and holes, and pits. They were finding any hole they could get into and pulling it on over them. They were afraid of the Philistines. And then we're told in verse 7, some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan. They just wanted to leave and get out of the hot zone, and they went to the land of Gad and Gilad or Gilead on the east side of the Jordan. As for Saul, he stayed in Gilgal, and all the people following him trembling. They are out of control. They don't know how to trust God, and he's not doing anything. The correct response would be to wait on the Lord. Psalm twenty seven fourteen 14 says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. But it's not easy to wait, and Saul's probably not unlike some of us, and he doesn't have a whole lot of patience, and he's waiting for Samuel to come, and how he knows Samuel is coming, we don't know. I don't think there's a connection back to uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, because... Too much has gone on in in between for that to fit into a six day period, and First Samuel ten eight Saul had told Samuel at that time. I mean Samuel told Saul at that time to wait seven days for him at Gilgal, but you don't have the battle with the Ammonites and then the uh, coronation and anointing at Gilgal. All of that could not take place within a a 6 day period and then the initial events in chapter 13. So I think this is a completely separate event. But he doesn't know how to wait on the Lord. Uh, Psalm 33:20 Our soul waits for the Lord, he is our help and our shield, but we don't see Saul relaxing and waiting on the Lord. He's panicky. He's waiting for Samuel. Samuel doesn't show up and by the time set and so uh, Saul gets impatient, and he says, I'm going to take over. I'm going to, I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to show that I'm religious too. I'm going to go through the external actions, and I'm going to carry out the sacrifices. Now, he wasn't authorized to do that because he wasn't a Levitical priest. So he says, bring the burnt offering, the peace offering to him, which they did. And as soon as he's finished, what a coincidence. As soon as he's finished, there comes Samuel. And this is the crux of the chapter. What have you done, Samuel says, when I saw that? And then Saul gives his little excuse. Now notice, the reasons he gives for being in a hurry are good reasons. They're legitimate reasons, but they don't justify disobedience to God. He says, the people were scattering from me. I had to hold them together. They were beginning to leave. Second, he said, you didn't come within the time appointed. He was just a little bit late. And that the Philistines were gathering together at Michmash. The forces are coming against us. We needed to do something, and we needed to be in a hurry. He forgot to wait on the Lord. So he went ahead, made his decision, offered a burnt offering totally outside the will of God, and now he's going to reap the consequences. Samuel said, you've done foolishly. What is the definition of wisdom in the Scripture? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the fool is the one who does not uh, fear the Lord, and he has not feared the Lord. So his heart isn't after the Lord like God wants. You've done foolishly, Samuel says, you've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That's one of those what ifs. God knows everything that's knowable, and he knows that if Saul had been obedient, then he would have given him the kingdom. But Saul was not obedient. But now Samuel says, your kingdom shall not continue. This is the first time it's announced that he's going to lose the kingdom. It says, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. See, this whole chapter is about this verse to show the need for David, that Saul is not the right kind of leader that God wants for Israel. He gave Saul, though, the king that was like the people wanted. And that's often what God does. He's given given us many times presidents who were according to what we desired, but they weren't the kind of men who should lead the nation. And that's what we need, not someone like the people want. But that's what we're going to get. Uh, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought himself uh, a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So what happens? Samuel arose. Went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him about 600 men. So he's got 600 left, and that sets the stage for the next part of the battle, which we'll cover next time in chapter 14. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to reflect upon your grace. That in your grace you provided a Savior who paid the penalty for our sins and a salvation that's not based on what we do or who we are, it's not based on Uh, legalistic obedience. It's based simply on trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. To believe in him is all that is necessary to have eternal life. Father, thank you for what we've learned here and the lessons that we've learned, lessons related to leadership, lessons related to government, lessons related to uh, the importance of living a life where we are walking with you, walking in obedience to you, and not just going through the external motions.